Hello and welcome to Get Me Another, a podcast where we explore those movies that followed in the wake of blockbuster hits and attempted to replicate their success. My name is Chris Iannacone, and with me, as always, is my co-host, Rob Lamorgis. Hello, everybody. This is episode seven in our series, Get Me Another Conan the Barbarian. And this week, we'll be exploring that most direct expression of the Get Me Another impulse, the sequel. That's right, it's time to circle back to the character that kicked off our series with 1984's Conan the Destroyer. In an age when only the strongest survived, and only the ruthless triumphed, only one name became a legend. Conan the Destroyer. In his first adventure, he fought alone. It is written that a woman child must make a perilous journey. I want you to take her on that journey. Now, he joins a wizard. What are they going to do? Have lunch. A warrior. One, two, three. A renegade. I think you're right. And a princess. Together. They are sent by a treacherous queen across the lands of hostile kingdoms to solve the mystery of an ancient race and seek the power of a phantom city. You're afraid of magic. And then he comes from evil. This will. Come anyway. The Horn of Dagoth, destroyer of worlds. The god will live again. Enough talk. If they cannot seize the horn in time, the world will be plunged into eternal darkness. Grace Jones, Wilt Chamberlain, Mako, Sarah Douglas, and Arnold Schwarzenegger as Conan the Destroyer. The all-new adventures of the most powerful legend of them all. Let's start off with perhaps, Rob, I think the most significant difference between the first and second Conan movies. Sure. While star Arnold Schwarzenegger and producer Dino De Laurentiis both returned, writer and director John Milius did not. Uh, That's not to say that Milius wasn't interested in doing more Conan films. If you recall from our first episode, he actually envisioned a trilogy centered around the themes of strength, responsibility, and loyalty. But apparently, Milius and producer Dino De Laurentiis frequently clashed on the set of the first film, uh, with the director saying that the only way he would return for a sequel was if De Laurentiis was not involved. Obviously, it's clear how that turned out. 
Yeah, I guess Dino was uh, going to be involved. <laughs> De Laurentiis originally intended for Roger Donaldson to direct the film before instead hiring him to direct the 1984 movie The Bounty, which is a really interesting retelling of the events of Mutiny on the Bounty and a film with a fascinating history in its own right. But instead, De Laurentiis brought in Richard Fleischer, apparently on John Milius's recommendation. Fleischer had a long career in Hollywood directing some incredible films from 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea to Fantastic Voyage to the Charles Bronson film Mr. Majestic to Soylent Green uh, and the movie that inspired Milius to take Conan on in the first place, 1958's The Vikings. But following the success of the first Conan, the studio felt there was even more money to be made if Conan could be made a bit more family friendly. And as such, there was a push by the studio for a second Conan to carry a PG rating rather than the R that the first film did. The PG-13 would come into existence later in 1984, but was not in existence when Conan the Destroyer was made. And while Schwarzenegger and Fleischer apparently argued against this, the studio's demands ultimately won out. And boy, does that show. Um, one of many decisions that make Conan the Destroyer like a complete 180 in tone and story and everything from Conan the Barbarian. Absolutely. It is remarkable. I don't know that I've ever seen a sequel try to be less like what it's the sequel of than Conan <laughs> uh, the Destroyer. Maybe you could argue Batman Returns a little bit, but, but that almost feels like Burton was amplifying the elements of Batman. This is just, it, it just feels like in many ways, whether it was intended or not, a repudiation almost of the first movie. Yeah, yeah, it really does. Conan the Destroyer was written by Stanley Mann, who also wrote Damien, Omen 2, and Firestarter, from a story by Roy Thomas and Jerry Conway. Uh, we mentioned Thomas and Conway in earlier in the series as the writers of Ralph Bakshi's and Frank Fazetta's film Fire and Ice. Uh, both wrote extensively for Marvel Comics and contributed to Marvel's popular Conan series. Apparently, Thomas and Conway were so disappointed with the final screenplay that they made their original story into a graphic novel called Conan the Horn of Azoth, uh, which was published in 1990. I haven't had a chance to read it, but I am very curious to check it out. I already love the title, so uh, sign me up. This film, again, stars Arnold Schwarzenegger as Conan, along with Grace Jones, Wilt Chamberlain, Tracy Walter, Sarah Douglas, Olivia Diabo, and Pat Roach. The only actors returning from the first film are Schwarzenegger, Mako as the Wizard of the Mounds, and Conan's Chronicler, and Sven Oli Thorsen, who is one of Thulsa Doom's lieutenants, but this time plays another role. Back in episode one of the series, when we were talking about John Milius's original Conan the Bar Barbarian, I made the comparison between that film and Richard Donner's Superman. While those films and their philosophies couldn't be more different, uh, in both cases, they brilliantly realized their iconic, bigger-than-life characters with authenticity and respect. So building off that analogy, I would argue that Conan the Destroyer is the Superman 3 of Conan films. There's no Conan equivalent of Superman 2 in this case, but in, in both cases you have movies that kind of hold their own, uh, you know, on their own merits, but can't hold a candle to the original. Like, I, I think if there had never been a Conan the Barbarian, I would have liked Conan the Destroyer more. For sure. This would have, I would have thought of it as a, uh, 
a decent adaptation. Uh, you could have done a lot worse. But after seeing Conan the Barbarian, which at the time we had said in that episode repudiates the William Goldman line of you yes. don't need subtext when you're writing Conan the Barbarian. Yes. I think he meant to say you don't need subtext when you're writing Conan the Destroyer because that is what this movie is. It is all surface compared to the depth of the first one. Absolutely. Absolutely. I, I mean, honestly, to the point where I would think that that William Golden quote, he must have seen Conan the Destroyer, thought it was Conan the Barbarian. And in that case, it totally applies. So let's get into it. On, on the plus side, I will say for Conan the Destroyer, it looks like Conan in terms of the level of production. And thanks to Basil Polidorus' incredible music, it certainly sounds like Conan. Um, we open with Conan and his new friend, the thief Malik, played by veteran character actor Tracy Walter, attacked by the forces of Queen Taramis of Shadazar, a fantastic Sarah Douglas who played Ursa in Superman and Superman 2, and they are testing to see if Conan is worthy of an important and difficult quest. Now, Rob, there's a couple of things in this opening scene that really bother me, and I, I have a feeling they're going to really bother you. Uh, the first is there's no sign of Subutai. Yeah. Uh, Malik apparently takes his place, uh, but, you know, he's... And he's fine. Like, Tracy Walter is, 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 a, is a, again, a veteran actor with tons and tons of credits. He was Bob the Goon in Batman. Um, but, like... He's no Subutai. Uh, I am intensely bothered by Conan wearing the wheel medallion. <sighs> like, by crumb do I hate this. Yeah, I that when I saw that, and I believe I texted you this yeah. while watching the movie, it felt like when they hired people to do the sequel, they showed them the first 20 minutes of Conan the Barbarian, and then they just said, okay, I got it. And yeah. then they stopped the movie and they were like, oh, yeah, we got to He wears that wheel necklace, right? Not knowing that at the end or not even at the end end, but, you know, in the late part of the first one, uh, Conan rips that off as a symbol of he is no longer a slave and he is his own man, which is, oh, my goodness gracious. Yeah, um, yeah it, it really bothers me. It, it, you know, and moreover, it's not even the same medallion as the first film. It's gold, which means that, oh, he decided to put on a more expensive symbol of his own bondage. I'm like, wait, what? Yeah. Like, it's just, it's one of those production design thing that makes me crazy. Yeah, and and, and even, you know, this this movie, look, when you, when you get that opening, you get the wide open vistas and everything is tinted red. And visually, it looks very stunning and great. Yeah. And I was I was all in. When you get into the scene, though, with uh, with him and his comic relief sidekick, and and believe me, he is comic relief sidekick. Yeah. And they're in they're in their first fight together, and they're cracking jokes, which Conan cracking jokes in the middle of a fight. This feels like Schwarzenegger's uh, fame in other movies is starting to creep into how they're going to portray Conan in this movie, which is just wrong. Again, no matter how much I love Tracy Walters, uh, and uh, shout out to him in Repo Man, by the way. Oh, everybody. absolutely. Plate of shrimp. Plate of shrimp. <laughs> but... Um, <laughs> oh man, it's just uh, misused. I think in this in this one. Yeah, it's not. It's just that the the character is not written to be interesting. Like he's just he's he's simply not. And it's not it's not anybody's fault. I hate that Conan is praying to Crom in that opening sequence. Like you know, he kind of swore that off in 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 Conan the Barbarian, and it's just 
as you said, it, it's like they watched the first 20 minutes and said, hey, we got the gist, and that's good enough. Yeah, and I, I get Krom was a, a big part of the, the stories and things for Conan, but if you're making a sequel to a movie that did one thing, it just feels like, uh, you know, I don't know. I don't want to get too, you know into like what you're allowed to do when one filmmaker makes a film or whatever. But I, I just think the other one was more interesting to me, what Milius had, had set off in motion um, as far as just these films go. I, I agree. I agree 100%. Uh, I will say Arnold uh, looks even more jacked in this film than the first one. And apparently that is the look that director Richard Fleischer wanted him to have, more of a cut look. And it's funny because I, I think it's very in keeping with other 80s strong man type of characters. If you think of how different Sylvester Stallone's Rocky Balboa looks in Rocky 3 and 4 from how he appears in the first and second movie, it's like there was this there was this move towards, you know, like 80s tough guys like getting more like cut and ripped and it's like oh well conan's i guess part of that same trend yeah it's kind of the beginning of the unrealistic male body in film where you can you know you have to have zero percent body fat and and be slightly dehydrated so you look excellent on film (laughs) and look i'm you know whatever it's you know i don't know people like it i you know it is what it is. Another thing that Conan looks very different in this movie compared to the first one is that Conan kind of looks like he's always having fun in this one, which was yeah. so not the case in the first one. Absolutely. But this one, I feel he's a little more Schwarzenegger in this. And yeah. and look, I love I love that 80s Arnold. Don't get me wrong. Of course. But again, it just it feels like another difference where the 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 thought and care of, of who the character had been set up to be uh i guess they wanted him to be less grumpy because it's for kids uh, i mean yeah. that you you already said it I, I the explanation is there but i i just don't like it as much uh that said i do love that opening establishing shot of the city of shadazar uh, it's as good it, that looks as good as anything in the first film later on there's another shot of the party leaving the city and walking in between these rows of like massive decaying statues uh, that is genuinely fantastic I love the shot later in the film with the woolly mammoth skeleton half buried in the desert and and it's actually one of the reasons I compare this movie to Superman 3 while that film wasn't nearly as good as the first two it still looked good it wasn't until Superman 4, The Quest for Peace, that the series started to look cheap. And the production values are pretty high on both Superman 3 and Conan the Destroyer. The problems lay in the story and characters. Um, I mean, for example, you have that stupid bit with the camel, which calls back to the first film. And how does Malik even remember that? He wasn't there. It's so dumb. Yeah, uh, you know, uh, at least Conan punches a horse in this it's true. That's <laughs> true. I guess. You know, so, it, uh, yeah, I don't want it to come on. There, it's not like this is an unenjoyable film. There's no. there's fun stuff in it, but you cannot really think too hard about the first one or where this fits in with it. And you just, it, it's almost like just this is an alternate universe Conan. It's it's very different feel. Oh, it's like Hercules with the multiverse. Yeah, it is like Hercules with the multiverse. <laughs> the multiverse comes back again. It's it's we're living in a in a multiverse era, uh, certainly at the moment. Well, anyway, we'll get into Queen Teramis wants Conan to escort her niece, the Princess Jenna, to recover the jewel hoard of Dagoth, 
the Dreaming God. And she was apparently born with a special birthmark that we never see. Uh, that means she's destined to wake Dagoth. In order to get the horn, she must first acquire the Heart of Araman, a jewel that is located inside the fortress of the wizard Toth Amon. And it's a bit like finding the headpiece to the Staff of Ra in order to get the Ark of the Covenant. Uh, in exchange for his help, Taramis promises that the resurrected Dagoth will be able to restore his love Valeria to life. Um, I, I, I gotta say, Queen Taramis is such an obvious and clear baddie. I, I mean, look at how she styled herself, which I have to add is right up my alley in terms of aesthetics, Rob. It's like they designed this character for me. Yes, I, I, you would have gone after the, uh, the talisman for her, but she could have told you what she really wanted to do with it, and you would have gone anyway. I would have gone anyway. <laughs> Yeah, and and yeah. I actually like they don't try to hide her villainy. As soon as Conan and Jenna are out of the room, she starts talking to Bombata about killing Conan and sacrificing Jenna with quote her virgin or virginity intact. I might add, um, yeah, she must be a virgin so she can be properly sacrificed. And what I have to say is just for anyone who knows reality, uh, especially with uh, NBA sports legend Wilt Chamberlain. <laughs> No. Being tasked with guarding a young woman's virginity is just extra special and a little giggle-inducing for those who know, yes. It's perfect. Uh, apparently, there were some very racy scenes with Sarah Douglas that were cut, including a sex scene with Conan, uh, as well as uh, a virgin sacrifice and her seducing a statue, which I presume is the statue of Dagoth that figures uh, into the, the story fairly, fairly prominently. There's no deleted scenes on the Blu-ray disc, Rob. I checked. This whole, you know, by this point in the in the in the movie, I, I kind of no started to notice with a lot, especially with the fantasy kind of establishing shots of areas. This is a, a soft focus film. Yeah. It's more hazy. You get kind of that fantasy dream look to it, like, a, you know, like a labyrinth kind of a movie, frankly, um, even though this would be a little before, I believe. But it's got that really kind of just like soft, hazy 80s uh, look to it. You know, it it which again gives it kind of that more nothing nothing too bad's gonna happen kids feel right. Uh, the party heads out on their quest. It's Conan, Malik, Jenna, the captain of the guards, Bombada, played by Will Chamberlain. Um, this was Chamberlain's only film role, by the way, and I actually think he's pretty good. Like he's a big enough guy that he fe genuinely feels like a threat to Conan. Yeah, Wilt Wilt's not a problem in this movie. You know, it's 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 funny for as much screen time as he has. I don't. He might have, uh, you know, he's got more dialogue than Conan did in Conan the Barbarian, but it's not <laughs> a, you know, particularly verbose role because he's playing kind of the heavy, right? Right. Um, he's, you know, he's the a big strong man who, you know, has been set on a path to double cross Conan. And you're just waiting for that to happen uh, in the third act. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, I will say they, they also, so soon they also encounter the Wizard of the Mounds from the first film, who we, we learn his name is Akiro. And he ends up coming up after being, you know, they meet him after he, they save him from being eaten by cannibals. Uh, and then they encounter the, 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 the last major member of the cast, Zula, played by Grace Jones. And I got to say, Rob, I think Grace Jones is a fantastic 
bit of casting for this movie. And I honestly wish the movie gave her more to do. She has got a look and a physique that is perfect for this world. And and I just, I honestly, I wish there was more of her in this movie. Yeah, I mean, I would say that of any 80s film that had Grace Jones. Absolutely. She's not a Swiss army knife of an actor. You're not going to be able to drop her in just any old role because she has such a strong personality and that is going to come through. But this is a perfect role for her. Yeah. I mean, much like Schwarzenegger in the first Conan, like the charisma is just insane in a part that is in many ways restrained, although here it's restrained because she's not the lead. But I love every every scene that has some focus on her is just made better by it. Absolutely. Definitely. I mean, you had done it right. You could have had had a spinoff with her. That could have been your your female Conan the Barbarian spinoff had it been done right, because she is so good. The problem comes when you introduce her and you wind up doing some Three Stooges-esque action with Conan in the midst of it. <laughs> yeah. And I'm pulling out my non-existent hair, Chris. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. They all soon arrive at Tothamon's castle, which sits in the middle of a lake, and they camp on the shore for a night while Tothamon turns into a giant bird and snatches Jenna. Now, it's thankful that Tothamon had a very comfortable-looking bed in his otherwise spare crystalline castle. Like, he's got a, a really nice, like, set of sheets. There's, like, a comforter that somehow feels completely out of place in this world. I don't know what it is, but it feels totally... I'm like, but yet, at the same time, I mean, I, I guess it's good that he had those things ready. I, I find all of it implausible, <laughs> and I don't care, Chris, because th- this is the point that I realize that Whatever faults this movie has, and do I like Conan the Barbarian better? Absolutely. But if you asked me which movie's rap party would I rather be at, (laughs) it is Conan the Destroyer's rap party. Because this movie is down to party, and this is exactly when you know it is. Yeah, no, you're absolutely right. Uh, I I should say a word about Toph Amon. Uh, He first appeared in the first published Conan story, The Phoenix on the Sword, and he's often considered one of Conan's primary foes. But here, he's almost a non-character, despite being played by stuntman and actor Pat Roach, who played the German mechanic who fought Indiana Jones near the Flying Wing in Raiders of the Lost Ark. He was also in Clash of the Titans, Never Say Never Again, and Willow. Uh, Tothamon transforms into a lizard creature and fights Conan in an Enter the Dragon-esque room of mirrors. And I love this scene. It is ridiculous. There's a scene where, where, where Tothamon, as the lizard creature, is spinning around Conan. And it, in that moment, we get the perfect Arnold face. I will put a photo of it on the on the, <laughs> on the Twitter and Instagram. It is, it is the ideal Arnold face. It's perfect. Yeah, I love that sequence too, and it's uh, it's just so wonderful. And you get there's that beast that's being projected in the uh, the mirrors, and it looks like kind of like a fighting urukai, but in a red cloak. Yeah. Um, and he's having to smash each mirror, trying to uh, when he realizes that he's trying to fight the monster itself, and it does nothing. Yes. You have to actually injure it in its own reflection. And the uh, like slashes appear as he's smashing each of the mirrors and while he's also trying to find behind which mirror is uh, Tothamon, right? Yes. And, and when he, and when he defeats him, he breaks the mirrors and then I love, they pull back the wizard's cloak 
and he was only just a broken mirror himself. Dun, dun, dun. The uh, the fight scenes in this movie, I, I'll give it this. They are trying to go bigger and do more yeah. elaborate stuff than in Conan the Barbarian, where it was more down to earth. You know, but they can get a little bit silly, like as you know, in this fight when the monster has Conan by the ankles and is spinning him uh, around and around. Um, <laughs> I love it. I do love it. I <laughs> yes. gotta say, um, yeah. it's just oh, no, it's fun. Uh, it's, it is, oh, by the way, I want to mention it is at this point we're around the 49 minute mark of the movie and it's the first time Conan puts on a shirt. I would have believed you if you told me he never did. (laughs) Almost immediately after recovering the jewel, the party is attacked by the queen's guard, which this was the queen's plan. And despite the fact Conan accepts Bombata's assurances that this attack wasn't on the Queen's orders. It's like, come on, Conan, don't be dumb just to move the plot along. Like in the first film, Conan's never stupid just to, so they can make the plot work. Here, it's it's stupid, and it's like, oh well, he has to be an idiot to to believe what uh, what Bombata's telling him. Yeah, and I mean, this is just. There is absolutely no character development or heart in this movie at all. Yeah. You don't have anything like the friendships and relationships in the first movie. It's just stuff happens because it has to. And I think this is a symptom of that for sure, where Conan's got to be dumb in order for for things to move on. Well, it's this is you know, it's funny you should say that cuz that in, in lieu of actual like character development, it's we get this next scene where we have the party resting for the night and Conan uh, decides to get shit-faced cuz this Conan's a moron. Drunk Conan walking into Wilt Chamberlain and then falling down <sighs> because he walked so hard it knocked himself out. Uh, it's just it's embarrassing for everyone in particular Conan. Like, Conan slurs his words, talking about the kingdom he was promised. What kingdom is that? First film makes very clear that life doesn't promise you shit. That's why Conan becomes a king by his own hand, which is what this movie should have been about. The only one who comes out of this scene looking okay is Zula, uh, and I really like the stuff with her and the princess. But a little side note on this, which is, remember, this is the kind of thing that they thought, we're trying to appeal to kids and families. Let's put something like this in. This is, I think, there's this whole 80s trend. The first one that I can remember being E.T. in 82, mm-hmm. where being fall down drunk is something that you that you go, ha ha, and put in a kid's movie. Uh, oh, yeah. Where, uh, you know, like getting blackout drunk is just hilarious in 80s movies. And then later on, it becomes less hilarious and you get leaving Las Vegas. Right. <laughs> This this is a step along the road between E.T. and leaving Las Vegas. Uh, Arthur, I guess. Arthur. Yes. You know. uh... <laughs> oh, by the way, that's another difference in this movie. Uh, it is hysterical to me that in, in this movie, everyone has heard of Conan. Uh, he is more famous than Deathstalker. I think they, they saw Deathstalker and knew that he needed to be more famous. They're like, we can't we can't let him. Mr. Stalker cannot be more Mr. Stalker. famous than Conan. Yes. <laughs> the party enters the temple where the horn is kept. And uh, that looks a little like the Temple of Doom, except in miniature. I, it's, I actually think it's kind of cool. Uh, and Akira finds, a writing, uh, finds writing on the wall that saying that the resurrecting Dagoth might not be such a great idea. But every 
everybody ignores him. And the group, they, they're able to get the horn, and then the group is confronted by the guardians of the horn who wait until after they acquire it to appear. And it doesn't, like, honestly, Rob, it just doesn't seem like the best strategy for guarding something is to just let somebody take it and then show up afterwards, although I guess it's possible they were on a lunch break. Well, I think it's it's in this evil guy strategy book right after when you have 20 fighters and they have two people Send those 20 fighters one by one, two, two by two at most, right? At most. You have to you have to attack serially. You cannot attack in parallel. <laughs> you know, that didn't get invented until later, Chris. Uh, I mean, at least in this one, they're fairly, like, confined in, in this cave area. I do, Will Chamberlain pulls a Darth Vader where he lifts a guy up by his throat and chokes him out. And I'm like, I believe that. I believe he can do that. Yes. Uh, don't mess with Wilt. No. Another good history lesson. Uh, that man is uh, a serious athlete, and uh, I am Marshmallow. Yeah. Uh, yeah. <laughs> believe me, I, I'm perhaps even more Marshmallow. <laughs> <laughs> um, our guys escape through a tunnel at the back of the temple and Babata takes the opportunity to trap them and escape with Jenna. And at least this time, Conan doesn't just write off Babata's treachery. He smartens up and realizes that Taram has lied to him about being able to bring back Valeria. And despite this, they decide to go and rescue the princess. They sneak into the city through the sewer and arrive just in time for the ritual. And uh, and this is a pretty interesting this, this last sequence of the film is a pretty interesting uh, bit. He, uh, you have Conan has got a pretty good fight with Mumbada. Uh, Taramis succeeds in attaching the horn to the statue of Dagoth, but is prevented from killing the princess. And Dagoth transforms into this huge, grotesque monster and kills Taramis. I guess, I guess loyalty is a one-way street with Dagoth. A couple things about Dagoth. The creature was designed by Carlo Rambaldi, who previously designed creatures for the 1976 King Kong, Close Encounters of the Third Kind, Alien, and E.T. the Extraterrestrial. The same year as Conan the Destroyer, he designed the creatures for David Lynch's Dune. And I think there's definitely some similarities between Dagoth and the third stage guild navigator in that film. Yeah, I, and now that you mention it, that that makes sense to me. I um, I know this is not taken from the Robert E. Howard stories directly, but Dagoth and the look of it and the you summon the thing and, and you think you're going to be in control and you're not. There's something very Lovecraftian about all of this. His good buddy. Definitely. Uh, <laughs> Definitely. Yeah, it's so weird that they were such close friends. That is just a, a very, very strange, strange <laughs> yeah. pairing. I, I like to think that Robert E. Howard just called him HP. <laughs> uh, like, like, hey, HP, you want to go down and look at go to the hat store? I, I need to get a new hat. <laughs> Oh, oh, the haberdashery. In fact, they, they, that, that would be, that's the place to go back in, you know, 1920s Texas. They're like, oh, I wish, I wish I could write like you, those monsters. They're very HP. <laughs> I, I could never write like that. <laughs> it's uh, like, Howard, stop it. It's Lovecraftian. Rob, I want to, here's a little bit of trivia. Uh, do you know who was inside the Dagoth suit? Because he's not credited in the movie. Oh, uh, okay. From that era, so this is 84, yes? 84. Hmm, is it someone who played Jason Voorhees? It is not. Um, is it like, it's not Andre the Giant. He wasn't that big. It is Andre the Giant. It is, yes! Andre the Giant was in the Dagoth suit. I was just playing 80s bingo. I had no idea. 
Well done. I, that's uh, you reason that out. I I uh, I think that's fantastic. Uh, and Conan goes toe to toe with Dagoth, and he soon realizes that the horn is the key to his power. And someone actually shouts out the line. I swear to God, the horn is his life, which is amazing. <laughs> it's just. He's got a horn and it's always warm. But it does lead to, I think, the coolest thing in this movie, which is ripping off the horn. And it is like nasty. Ripping off the horn and then casually tossing it aside after he realizes he doesn't need it anymore. Yeah. I mean, it's it's pretty hardcore. Oh yeah, no, it's uh, it's fantastic. Yeah, uh, you know, it's it's a good fight, and like again, the the, the end of this movie, uh, I think it's really good. It, the the problem with this movie is just that it's there's no depth to it. Uh, there's no subtext to it. The the st- all the stuff we talked about with the first Conan. That's not to say it's not entertaining. Uh, at the end, Jenna becomes the new queen, and we have this Star Wars-style reward scene at the end where Zula's made the new captain of the guard, Akira an advisor to the queen, Malak the court jester, and Conan turns down an offer of marriage to Jenna. And and just, it struck me as how tonally different that is from the end of the first film. Like, Conan wins at the end of Conan the Barbarian, but the feel of it is completely completely different it's it's quiet it's it's it it feels like you know he's he's just kind of sitting on those steps and and it feels there's a wistfulness to it and this is just you know it's it's star wars it's you know yeah because that's everyone's favorite part of star wars is the metal (laughs) sequence at the end totally worth redoing yeah, and then Conan, and they toss it off again. This feels like it's turning into more of an Arnold Schwarzenegger movie than a Conan movie, which is probably also why, even though it's so different from Conan the Barbarian, I still like it because newsflash, I do love Arnold movies from the 80s. Absolutely. But uh, when when she offers her hand in marriage and he turns it down, it's just kind of glibly like, because uh, I'm going to go get my own crown. Right. And then he's just kind of off. But it's very... Wink and a nod, very light in tone, as you were saying, so different from the first one where Conan literally killed religion <laughs> to avenge his parents' yes. murders. Yes, yes, that's exactly. And here it's like, no thanks, princess, I'm going to go get a king uh, king crown of my own. Yeah. All right, maybe I'll be back. Our kingdoms can be buddies. You know, and, and again, as we said earlier, if this had been the only Conan movie, it would have been an enjoyable, like, it would have been it would have been all right. But it's, again, when you have it right next to John Milius's original Conan the Barbarian, it just suffers by comparison uh, so much. Oh, speaking of comparison, uh, that is not the very end of the scene. There's one last final shot where we get the older Conan sitting on his throne, which I I have to think was taken from the end of Conan the Barbarian uh, and you get Mako's voiceover telling us that he would eventually win his own kingdom and it says it, it actually doesn't even it says on screen but that is another story and I'm like that should have been this story this movie should have been Conan the Conqueror and how he came to rule a kingdom by his own hand but with the mandate for it to be a family film he probably would have ruled his own kingdom by like a pie fight or something <laughs> It was just like, it, or oh, we've I've set all these banana peels on the ground, and all oh, their whole army has slipped and fallen on their high knees. And they, I, I am now king. <laughs> um, 
And, and while the film did well at the box office, uh, and, and it did do well, it was kind of responsible for Conan's the Conan series' early demise. The tone and the comic elements put off Schwarzenegger, and while he was still under contract with Dino De Laurentiis, that contract was fulfilled by his appearance in Red Sonja, which we will talk about next week. Uh, and that is going to be a, a terrific episode, folks. As well as the action film Raw Deal. So when they tried to get a third Conan movie going somewhere around 1987, under the title Conan the Conqueror, Arnold had moved on to other things. That project then fell into development hell and emerged a decade later as Call the Conqueror a movie we'll discuss in the final episode of this series. So this remains the last appearance of Arnold Schwarzenegger as Conan, not counting his role in Red Sonja, which is Conan by another name. And it's a shame because that first film was so good and held so much potential for a continuing series and it wasn't realized. Uh, we can only kind of wonder what John Milius's Conan trilogy might have been like if he had been he had stayed with the film and, and carried through his vision for three movies. Yeah, I, I would have loved to have seen that. And, uh, you know, look, and I, I've been sitting here being a, a jerk for half this thing, but uh, <laughs> Conan the Destroyer, I, I can't tell you to not see it. There, It's still enjoyable. It's still fun. Uh, I'm, I'm lovingly, hopefully, poking fun at it because, uh, you know, those family elements do seem a little out of place. And it, knowing that the filmmakers didn't want them, I, I think they probably been fine with that, too. But frankly, it is it's not like this movie ruins the first one. Even no, it's just kind of a head scratcher compared to the first one. Uh, agreed. Now, Rob, I have a question for you. If one bodybuilder playing a barbarian makes for box office success, what if we have a movie with two bodybuilders playing barbarians hmm. and even better Rob, what if they are twins? You know, it's only going to work if you get the director of Cannibal Holocaust <laughs> to do it. <laughs> Funny enough, that's exactly what happens. Which brings us to our next film, 1987's The Barbarians. At the dawn of time, in a world of savage splendor, a tyrant of darkness ravaged the land and captured two defenseless children, raised as slaves, trained as gladiators. Only together could they defeat the evil warlord. <laughs> they were rogues. Look at the size of you two. Adventurers. Heroes. They were the barbarians. After them, I want their head! Fight or run. Run. The internationally renowned bad boys of bodybuilding, Peter and David Paul. Oh, get out of here, he's mine. No, get out. I'm going out. I'm going out. Go ahead. The barbarians feel the power. The Barbarians is our third film 
that we've discussed in this series from Golden and Globus's Canon Films. It's also the fifth film that we've discussed in this series from an Italian filmmaker. In this case, Ruggiero Diodata, the director of the controversial film Cannibal Holocaust. Uh, the film was written by Canon Films regular James Silk, who also scripted Revenge of the Ninja and Ninja 3 The Domination, as well as Sahara, and a film we'll be talking about later this year in our Get Me Another Indiana Jones series, 1985's King Solomon's Minds. The film stars Peter and David Paul, a.k.a. the Barbarian Brothers, as well as Richard Lynch, who played the villain in one of our first films, uh, The Sword and the Sorcerer, and Eva LaRue. A little background, Rob, on the Barbarian Brothers. Okay. They were born in Hartford, Connecticut, and they build themselves as the bad boys of bodybuilding. After moving to Los Angeles and working out at Gold's Gym, they appeared in several movies, including DC Cab and The Flamingo Kid, but it was apparently a set of photos in Playgirl that brought them to the attention of Canon Films. And... Oh, for the record, they had already started calling themselves the Barbarian Brothers before this movie came into existence. Wait, wait, wait. You're telling me that Golan and Globus didn't see them in the Flamingo Kid? I would have <laughs> thought that'd be right up their alley. <laughs> well, they also were in an episode of Knight Rider. So maybe, I don't know, maybe that was... Uh, I think it's interesting that both films this week are kind of all over the map in terms of tone. This far into the cycle of films, the consistency that we saw with movies like Conan the Barbarian or even Conquest is largely gone. We have some sequences which feel incredibly serious, while others border on slapstick. We open with foreboding images of a battlefield and some really kick-ass music courtesy of Pino Donaggio, who also composed the music for a number of Brian De Palma pictures and both... Get this, both of Luigi Cosi's Hercules movies. Ooh. Yeah, I mean, this is, if you look up 80s synth score in the dictionary, you will see this in there. The breathy kind of flute sounds that sound nothing like a breathy flute, uh, but are in anything that was synthy in the 80s movies. Like, I, I, I just feel like a cop should be rescuing a woman <laughs> and also killing. And fighting. <laughs> yeah. I love it. Yeah, it is It is. It is a terrific score. Oh, I, I should say up front, the, the credit, Michael Berryman as the Dirt Master is one of my all-time favorite on-screen credits. Because he gets that and credit, and I love it. Yeah. Dirt Master, uh, oddly enough, uh, you know, will also, I think, went to my high school. So there you go. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> The Barbarians, we also have a voiceover in The Barbarians telling us of a tribe called the Ragnicks, whose king traded a mountain of gold for a ruby, which contains the secrets of music, joyful laughter, and human kindness. So the Ragnicks have become entertainers to the world, like a sword and sorcery up with people who have freedom of movement throughout the land. And I think it's really interesting to start this with a group of actors and entertainers. Like, they are our heroes for this story, and it's really different and kind of cool. Yeah, I mean, you get this weird traveling circus before circuses existed uh, in, a, in a land of, where circuses also still don't exist, probably to this day. <laughs> but, um, yeah, it's just, it feel, and I will say this, I think starting with something 
so different from Conan, right? This is not yeah. like a hard scrabble village that's about to get attacked. This is, you know, they're literally like throwing fairy dust in the air in a way. <laughs> this just sets you up for the tone of this thing, which will, you know, go back and forth all over the place. But I think this movie set me up in the beginning with, hey, we're going to just kind of be off, offbeat and goofy as hell. And so I've rolled with it. Yeah, spoiler alert, this movie's insane, but I had a lot of fun with it. And I do think that most of the time as we go through and and say some of this ridiculous stuff, that the movie is in on the joke. um, And clearly, and with the brother's performance, which we'll get to down the road. um, Yeah. Yeah. So it is... uh, Beautiful. Yes, yes. I, I do believe they're in on the... Uh, th- see, this movie is not one movie. It's like five movies. And some of them I really dug, and some of them I did not. And it was it's really, really schizophrenic. I, I want to say first, uh, the, the, the Ragnicks, the performers wear sort of like this pastel face paint, which is the most 80s thing I've ever seen. They look like they're on the way to perform the halftime show at Thunderdome. And it's amazing. Yeah, I mean, they, they look like the parents of the guys in the Warriors who went wrong, right? They're like, oh, <laughs> oh, no, that's not what face pain is for. You should be lovely. <laughs> <laughs> I also should say, in general, as a, as a word of warning to our listeners, I am not too sure about the wisdom of practicing your axe throwing with a live target while on a moving wagon. I'm just saying it seems unsafe. Magic Ruby. Oh, yeah, I guess there's the Magic Ruby, yeah. yeah. Uh, we are told that the Ragnicks adopted three orphans, twin boys named Kuchik and Gore, as well as a girl named Kara. All three children are given the mark of the open road, uh, a tattoo on a conspicuous spot on their necks. I say this because it will be important later. Yeah, and as everyone knows, when you want to adopt someone into your band of freedom-loving freedomers, (laughs) you instantly brand them. (laughs) Because nothing says freedom like branding someone's skin. It is true. Uh, the Ragnicks are soon attacked by the forces of Kadar, a warlord who wants the ruby, as well as the Ragnicks' queen canary, for himself. To be clear, the Ragnicks' queen is named Canary. They don't have a bird for a leader. <laughs> Although she is very bird-like at times, but uh, but feisty. I can see don't that. Don't cross her. Don't cross her. No, 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 no. This evil horde coming in looks very Mad Max as well. Yeah, there's there is a real Mad Max like vibe. I mean, it's still clearly sword and sorcery and fantasy, but it's infused with a Mad Max vibe. One of the most interesting aspects of this movie is the production design by Giuseppe Mangiano. The sets, the costumes, the general atmosphere are all really interesting. Yeah, I mean, uh, in this opening scene, the mountain location where they're traveling is Yeah, the cinematography, too, is great. Like, there are some beautiful shots in this movie. Then they're, you know, they're they're built around this movie, which is positively bonkers. There's aspects of this movie that are so frustrating to me. And then there's aspects of the movie that I love. It's so schizophrenic. Yeah, I I was on fire, so I just stopped, dropped, and rolled with this baby. (laughs) Like, like. Take Canary, right? The lip liner. I wanna, I wanna I pause know. everything to talk about this. She has. It is the '80s, so she's got like this, like tan, like you know, like white person skin tan lipstick. Uh, you would probably have called it nude back then. Um, 
And then you get the black lip liner around it. And she has these lips for the whole movie, regardless of what position she is supposed to be in, whether she's a prisoner or on the run or has she gone through or a queen. And it it is so amazingly 80s. And those lips alone, Chris, suspended all disbelief for me (laughs) for this entire film. We open I, early. We have one of the best sequences in this film, this extended chase sequence between the Ragnick's caravan of wagons and Kadar's mounted soldiers. It is fantastic. Yeah. Uh, like, it is a fantastic stunt-filled sequence. Like, again, something reminding me out of some of the sequences in Mad Max, like a, like a sword and sorcery Mad Max. I mean, there were stunts that made me out of game legit nervous like guys falling between horses guys going nearly under the wheels of wagons i was actually nervous watching these for the stunt performers i'm like oh god i hope nobody was really hurt yeah this stuff does look pretty amazing and you get you get those showpiece stunts and then in between um he really knows how to kind of hide the low budget as best he can yeah because you know it's not it's not that many people there are some exciting things but a lot of time it's just you know your, your standard action but he utilizes kind of going from you know close-ups or even, maybe even like a medium shot in succession to sell it it's not george miller in mad max fury road but it's not dissimilar no. In, in function where that it's almost like that centered action like punch 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 with yeah. your edits it's got a very nice rhythm with the editing there and again look it's it is cheap but they are doing what they can and making it look good and exciting anyway and um it's it's very impressive i think yeah no i it's really really good i love how the ragnicks use various aspects of their entertaining skills to fight off the attackers you get a fire breather you get the aforementioned axe thrower they have a giant catapult for some reason one guy (laughs) throws juggling clubs at a horseman and there's an exploding crystal ball it's amazing you will believe a crystal ball can explode when you watch this movie (laughs) absolutely (laughs) in the end the ragnicks are captured and queen canary is forced to surrender to kadar and although not before one of the twins bites off two of his fingers and canary says she will become part of kadar's harem if he spares their lives and i gotta say richard lynch just like in sword and the sorcerer richard lynch gives off an air of danger in this movie and and i honestly i think that might have just been him in real life from what i've read uh he's got a great line i love the line it's time for you to learn the pleasures of surrender yeah amazing yeah and this is a a sequence where you do feel it's the director of cannibal holocaust because uh, Kadan is so sadistic when they, you know, when he finally trapped them and he's just torturing them. Like he's going around waving his sword about, you know, with essentially like, am I going to kill this person? Am I going to kill that person? And he's laughing his head off. Yeah. And then he does just kill one of them of the troop just to do it. it. And then that's in the lead in for the, you know, getting the ruby and the kids biting his fingers off. But he is, I mean, he is sadistic in this thing um yeah yeah and and during the chase that the the queen canary is able to she sends one of the guys out to hide the ruby so so he gets her but he doesn't get the ruby yeah which by the way why if you were a sadistic guy who wanted to rule the world would you want (laughs) a ruby of like true friendship or whatever i'm like yes i I don't i don't get how this thing's gonna help them (laughs) 
<laughs> Maybe he wants to destroy it and end end joy in the world. I, I don't know. Failed acting career. Who knows why he wants this thing? <laughs> it's never explained. I also want to mention another another actor. I want to mention Sheba Alahani as China, who is Kadar's sorceress, and. I swear to God, she has a very special kind of 80s evil. It's all intense stares and wild, weird hand gestures. Uh, she's amazing in this movie. Uh, I, there should have been more of her. Hard agree. Yes. The twin boys are taken to the Dirt Master, played by Michael Berryman of The Hills Have Eyes. And there's no wheel of pain here, but we do have the pit to which they are sent and split up. Now, Kadar promises... Canary that she would that he wouldn't kill the boys himself. So he puts into action the most forward-thinking, multi-year, incredibly patient plan for them to kill each other. It's so deranged, and it takes like a decade to go into effect, and I'm amazed by it. Also, Canary never sees any of the brothers during that time to verify that they're alive because she doesn't know what's going on. But more importantly, Chris. That lip liner never fades. Nope. Not one. Nope, it does not. Not one iota. <laughs> Basically, the twins are kept in separate parts of the pit, so they don't see each other. And we're told in voiceover, they've forgotten about each other. But clearly, that's not true. Both are trained as gladiators, just like Conan. But one is brutalized by a guy in a black helmet. The other is brutalized by a guy in a brass helmet. And we're told that all they know is the hate for the men in the helmets. So that when we reach a certain age, which is at least a 10 year jump, like maybe, maybe like 15, because they're fairly little kids and then they're like full grown adults. And when they reach a certain age, they are brought into the gladiatorial arena, which I have to say, again, this movie's production design is terrific. The the, the arena is, it's not the usual gladiatorial arena. No, or pit. it is not. It's long and narrow. And you have like people in like, like the spectators basically on cages on either side of the pit, like on the same level. They're not, some of the people are looking down, but most of the spectators are like right there. It's really interesting and really different. And you get a cool milking of that moment in the direction and editing as they're walking in to each other, the brothers, not yeah. knowing that they're brothers, uh, where you're kind of cutting from the one side to the other as they're walking. And I, I think there might even be some travel shots from behind them over the shoulder is they're getting closer to each other. And it's just, it's cool. It is very cool. And now what happens is one of the brothers has the black helmet put on him. One of the brothers has the brass helmet put on him. And again, these helmets cover the whole head. Just like you cannot see the person's face in the helmet. And they are sent to fight each other. And the whole scene is fantastic. It is brutal and fierce. There's a lot of the spectator's hands gets chopped off. It's great. The time this happened, we're nearly a third of the way through this movie, and it's been awesome so far. Then the helmets come off. <laughs> and it gets awesomer. <laughs> the two brothers, the two brothers recognize each other, and man, oh man, do things take a turn from here. Well, at, at first, the brother, one brother recognizes the other brother's mad yeah. because the one brother stole his face. And I, I forget if it was, 
Which one's the dumb one? The dumber I one? I can't it, remember. They're yeah, both dumb. Is it gore or... Uh, I can't okay. tell. They're yeah. gore. I, I can't... I, I, I don't refer... I can't I can't tell them apart. I cannot do it. They're the bros. Yeah, but the what? The dumber brother is, you stole my face! And he's getting so mad. Oh, and the God. other brother says, I'm your brother, remember? Or something yeah. to that effect. Yeah, and, 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 and listen, I'm not, I'm not here to, you know... I'm not trying to be a jerk uh, about individual performances, uh, but as soon as they start talking, it undercuts almost everything else in the movie. The two brothers act like such stupid, bratty kids. They constantly bicker. It's the most annoying thing. I don't know. For me, it's just like you you put a Miami connection in the middle of this Conan movie, and I'm like all for it. Uh, like uh, Apparently, the Barbarian brothers ad-libbed a lot of their dialogue with one another. Believe it. I guess. Uh, and one of them, I swear to God, Rob, one of them, keeps making donkey noises like he's the assassin from Godfather 3. And by the end of the film, I swear, <laughs> I swear to God, I swear to God, if I heard him make donkey noises, I was going to lose what little sanity I have left after our Hercules episode. Oh, my God. Well, anyway. We do get a moment. Uh, it's kind of Chekhov's donkey noise at the end. It doesn't, <laughs> it doesn't turn the world necessarily, but it does come into play. So it was an ad lib the filmmakers clearly liked because they, they rolled with it. Oh, man. It just reminds me so much of uh the the what the uh in in uh of George Bailey's friend in <laughs> it's a wonderful um, life yeah <laughs> but yeah uh, uh, uh. It turned up to spinal tap proportions uh <laughs> <laughs> The Barbarian Brothers escape the pit and they return to the forest where they instantly find the remnants of the Ragnicks as well as a woman named Ismene who is imprisoned as a thief. Now, here's the funny thing, Rob. Except for the twins who have gone from little kids to adults, no one else in the tribe has aged. Like, one of the brothers says, careful, they've changed. And I'm like, no, they have not. None of them have changed. The chick with the orange makeup looks exactly the same as she did before. <gasps> that, I think, is the power of the ruby, is the makeup freezes you. It's like a, a portrait of Dorian Gray, but on your own face. Uh, and it's It all comes back to that lip liner. Uh, it's, it's magical. The Ragnicks decide to hang the twins, as well as their prisoner. Oh. They never think to check for the mark of the open road on their necks. It's not until the bros escape their nooses, one by bulging out his neck, the other by breaking his restraints and pulling down the branch. It, only then do they check. You know, what if they hadn't, what if they'd actually successfully hung them? Would they have checked then? Oh, I guess we should check for the mark of the road first. What's the point of the brand if you're going to not check for it? All I cared about is that one of the barbarian brothers is hanging from a noose in the air from the tree and can snap the rope by hanging his neck. It is amazing. I don't, I, you know, it, it's kind of oh. like, uh, you know, it's, it's a bit of a cinematic miracle uh, in my opinion. Yeah. It's so lovely. And then his other brother, you know, goes through it and, oh man. Yeah. They, they they identify them and then uh, you get you get a little more with Ismene at that point. Uh, oh man, it's it's oh, it's so wonderful. 
Ismene joins up with the twins and they go to a tavern called the Bucket of Blood to go find some weapons. Now, Ismene is played by Eva LaRue and this was her first role and she's gone on to a long career in movies and television. And here's the thing. She's got charm and charisma, but I don't think, like, she is not convincing for this world at all. Like, I don't believe her as part of this sword and sorcery world at all. She's like the cute girl who works at Chess King in the Paramus Park Mall in 1986. She does not belong in sort of this, this sword and sorcery world. I just don't buy it, despite the fact that she's really, she's really charming. See, the fact that she reminds you of an 80s mall is exactly why she needs to be in this film, Chris. <laughs> because this movie is like an 80s van painting come to life. It is... <laughs> I, 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 this is such a... You're, you're, you know, honestly, that 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 may be the, 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 the argument that turns me around. Because I had very mixed feelings about this movie. But if I'm thinking of it like an 80s van sprung to life on celluloid then that's a whole other bag <laughs> like you've got to be watching this movie while playing with the plasma ball from the sharper or uh, the sharper image or, or no what was the other one the uh the novelty store uh in the mall uh, oh 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 is it spencer's spencer's gifts absolutely yep apologies to any of the non-us listeners as we go down the road of uh terrible 80s mall stuff <laughs> But all this is to say is that the spirit of this movie, I think the heart of rock and roll is still beating, Chris. And Eva LaRue is 100% in the spirit of that. She is a joy in this movie. Oh, she I is. I can't think of another actress that could have played off of the Barbarian Brothers in the way that she does. She is unflappable by them. Like, you know, totally unfazed and just like rolls with everything. And the dynamic between the three of them, which in many other movies would have gone... Uh, not, not that this movie doesn't in other ways, but it would have gone creepily sexual. It really feels like she's like the big sister to these to these two lunkheads or something. And it just yeah. it works yeah. like for me in that way. <laughs> uh, the twins at the bucket of blood, the twins get into an arm wrestling match and they win. But nevertheless, they don't come away with any weapons because that's what happened. Yeah. Don't piss off Jocko, the arms dealer. Yeah. <laughs> Let the Wookiee win. Yeah. yeah. They sneak into the fortress anyway to rescue Canary, but she pulls a reverse Marion Ravenwood and refuses to leave. Instead, sending the bros to find the magical ruby, which that she was that was hidden before she was captured. Oh, by the way, Rob, uh, while they were in the harem, they decided to play a little touchy-feely with the girls who were there. Yeah, it doesn't get... It, I mean, it shouldn't have happened at all, but at least... The one brother's pulling the other brother away. Um, kind of. Kind of. <laughs> it is it is it is unfortunately still the mid-80s. Yes. The last part of this movie, then, we, we they're going to get the ruby. And then, for the, at first, they have to swing by the tomb in order to pick up the only weapons that can defeat the dragon that guards the ruby in the Forbidden Zone. And China, the sorceress, actually succeeds in torturing the location of the ruby out of Canary, because she's one of the only competent people in this movie, and her and the Dirt Master go and find it and are promptly eaten by the dragon. Yeah. 
And I'll say even the setup to this, you know, not there's like in-depth characterization in this movie. It's not doing that. But China gets set up early on as is not liking that what Kadan is uh, so into Canary. Yeah. She thinks it's clouding his judgment. And he needs to be more proactive to get the ruby. And then she goes and does it. So it's it's like a double cross that's actually set up. Yeah. Newsflash, she was right. Hashtag China was right. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. No, that's true. Then she's eaten by a dragon, so it didn't it didn't all go well. I I the dragon, by the way. Listen, <laughs> here's my here's my feeling on dragons. I'm not sure that you should do a dragon if you can't do a dragon. And the dragon here looks like if the Universal Studios tour had a tube worm instead of Jaws. It's very strange. <laughs> uh, that said, Michael Berryman's scream when he sees the dragon is uh, is sublime. It's amazing. Yeah, Michael Berryman, uh, you know, if, if my one criticism of this film is not enough Michael Berryman, uh, because he, I just... Look, I grew up in that time period and seeing him on film just, you, you instantly become a kid again and he's always amazing. Yeah, I, I just, uh, I don't know what to say, but I love him and maybe if Bruce the Shark hadn't have worked in this, it, you would have had a better time with the scene because <laughs> I, yeah, that mechanical dragon is 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 wanting a little bit. Yeah, the, the, the bros go to get the weapons in the tomb and they're attacked by werewolves, I think. Um, it, it's kind of, it's kind of anticlimactic and I didn't I didn't actually follow what was happening but you know I think they looked like werewolves I don't know and uh, then they go to the forbidden zone and fight the dragon and they and they cut a hole in the belly of the dragon and they climb inside where a dead China is still clutching the ruby yeah I love this because first of all when you go from the exterior to the interior uh, this dead dragon is also a TARDIS yeah uh, <laughs> <laughs> the diameter of this thing changes wildly. Bigger on the inside, folks. Much bigger on the inside. Bigger on the inside. I also love it because it, it looks like one of those child, um, you know, hoop tunnels that uh, first came with the cloth. <laughs> yes. It, it just oh like God, it looks like yes. a big one of those. And then they just like dressed it. And uh, it, again, just gives this whole thing like this play pretend feel in a, in a really kind of goofy and, and for me charming way. And also, they just cut themselves into a dragon. How cool is that? <laughs> yes, yes, they do. I should mention, important plot point. One of the brothers figures out that Ismene is actually Kara. The other orphan that the Ragnicks had with them at the beginning of the film. And honestly, I had forgotten about that character. And one of the bros says, that's Kara. I thought it was a mistake and no one on set corrected him. Uh, yeah, it may. I think they may have uh, just rolled with that, like the donkey noise, Chris. Uh, <laughs> and just incorporated it into the end. Ismene slash Kara goes off with the ruby while the brothers go to have one final fight with Kadar. Now... Kadar kills Canary, which causes the ruby to turn into a regular rock. And the Ragnicks realize this means the queen is dead and they need to choose a new queen. Now, of course, the queen's been in captivity for at least a decade, so they must have a de facto person in charge. I'm not sure what the urgency is. Nevertheless, the Ragnicks decide to choose a new queen. Their method of choosing a leader is the most <laughs> fascinating thing I've ever seen in terms of, of succession of a throne. Okay. St 
Step one, you gather all the virgins in the tribe. You actually hear the line, hurry, bring all the virgins. There are how many virgins in the tribe, Rob? Two. Two virgins. Then they place the ruby in each of the belly buttons. It's it's transformed back into a ruby, just take my word for it. And they place the ruby in each of the virgin's belly buttons. If it sticks, they're the queen. If it falls out, they're not. And it falls out of both girls, so it's a non-starter. But, but... Then the, the ruby starts to glow and they decide to try it in Ismina's belly button and it sticks despite the fact she tells them up front, hey, I'm not a virgin. <laughs> Who cares? Long live the new queen. Magic ruby. <laughs> Makes total sense to me, Chris. Magic uh, oh, she ruby. also reveals that she's Kara and she has the same tattoo on her neck. Why didn't you check that before you tried to hang her? Yeah, or why didn't she say something before they tried to hang her? <laughs> That's another another option there. Yeah, that is, they could have done and that. And that, to me, says they filmed that scene before the ad lib of Kara and they <laughs> built it into the end of the movie. <laughs> It makes total sense. Uh, the bros have a final battle with Kadar, and he, he actually is doing okay against these two meatheads uh, until his crossbow misfires, and the bros simultaneously throw their swords into his chest. And with a new queen and two twin barbarians, the Ragnicks return to their lives as wandering entertainers. Freeze frame. We end on a freeze frame, and I love it. No more appropriate ending for this film than ending on a freeze frame. And we get something else. We get something we haven't had in a while. Oh, we haven't I was had so since happy. Ador the Fighting Eagle. We get an 80s power ballad over the closing credits called Ruby Dawn. And I am promising the folks at home that will be playing over the end of this episode. We have not had that many great songs in this series, but now we have one and it's amazing. Yeah, I, I will say I... I have been shocked by how few amazing 80s rock tunes have come out of the Conan the Barbarian movies, which is to say not shocked it's, at all. It's a little <laughs> it's a little disappointing. I mean, we had yeah. uh, Doran, get me another Halloween. We had way more uh, yeah. you know, like cool ending songs that we could play. And uh, I am I am excited to have another one this week. Uh, I I mean, you know, I sound like I didn't like this film. I there's some aspects of this movie I liked a lot. And I just the bros, man. The barbarian bros. It was tough. It was tough. You know, I just see this through the lens of this is an Italian-American movie. Like, it's <laughs> it's not your, but it's like the version of Bravo. your that we make. Bravo. Um, is how I see this thing. It's just unbridled joy. Oh, my God. It, you're too close to the material to be able to appreciate it fully, Chris. That's a, that's an, a, that's amazing. You got to step back. See it with the eyes of a child. <laughs> and I, oh, God. It's New Jersey yore. Yes. It's New Jersey yore. Oh, this, this takes a whole other angle. <laughs> Oh my God! Oh, that is that is. I gotta, I gotta, I gotta, I gotta have a think on this because it's, 
you know, again, there's aspects of this movie that the production is great. The cinematography is great. Uh, there are just genuinely beautiful shots. Uh, and, and, and it's a really well-made film, you know, with some acting and story issues. But, uh, you know, if you think about it as Jersey Yore, <gasps> I just coined that. Yeah. Oh, my God. Put that on the put that on the Blu-ray box. <laughs> it's Jersey Yore, Chris Iannica. <laughs> Uh, I think it's really interesting, uh, you know, how the tone of these films has been changing from John Milius' original Conan to the two films we discussed this week. And it's going to be really interesting to see how that tone continues to evolve over the last few films that we'll talk about uh, in this series. We have two more episodes to go, and uh, and we have some really interesting films, and and the tonal shift, I think, is going to be really, really an interesting thing to explore. Yeah, and, and today we found even the Conan series itself changed from being yeah. so serious and, and adult. And started to within one film. Yeah, you don't even yeah. have that bridge Superman two to 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 kind of bridge the gap. Now that that must have been a story for another time. <laughs> uh, which is the perfect segue into talking about next week's episode because I am very excited. We have a very special guest who will be joining us for the first time on the program. Jeff Garlock from the Canon Canon will be here to discuss the third Dino De Laurentiis produced sword and sorcery movie of the 80s. That's right, folks. It's time for Red Sonia. Brigitte Nielsen, Arnold Schwarzenegger, us and Jeff Garlock all next week for Red Sonia. It's going to be it's going to be great. Thank you all so much for listening. Again, as always, we are your hosts. Chris Iannacone and Rob Lamorges. If you've enjoyed the show, please consider subscribing and following us on Twitter and Instagram at Get Me Another Pod. If you like the show, tell your friends, tell your enemies, tell that cute girl at Chess King, and join us next time as we continue to explore what happens when Hollywood says, Get Me Another.
The Barbarians is our third film that we've discussed in this series from Golden and Globus's Canon Films. It's also the fifth film that we've discussed in this series from an Italian filmmaker. In this case, Rogario... No, I, I practiced this beforehand and I'm... I even wrote it phonetically. <laughs> there you go. It's Ator. <laughs> oh, we're, this I'm cutting. <laughs> I know. 